Ladies and gentlemen, salt and pepper! W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Avitas MA5. We're skipping the Harrison 32 EQ. It's bypassed today, and at least the analog version of it. And uh, we've got the RNC500 in full effect. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the moon cabin. And... I have a very exciting announcement to make. Well, first, another exciting announcement. Megan Tan is on the show today. Radio and podcast titan, Megan Tan. Megan Tan, whose story you may have recently heard on This American Life, a beautiful piece about being a caretaker for her father after he had a fall somewhat recently. But Megan Tan, whose work you may also be familiar with from her work with LAist Studios, where she created and hosted shows like Wild and Snooze. And before that, you may be familiar with her producing work. Uh, She was at Gimlet for a while and produced, among other things, the show The Habitat, which was huge. And before all of that, Megan created and 100% by herself made the show Millennial, which ran for several years and catapulted her to justified radio stardom. And we're going to talk more about all of that in just a moment. But before we get to that, um, I'll tell you my little piece of news, which I'm going to have a lot more to say about in the coming weeks. But today marks the launch of a brand new project that I'm very excited about. I've been working on it for months with a team that has been working on it for even longer. It is a podcast called Sports Explains the World. And it's a weekly series of audio documentaries that have to do with sports, but are really just people's stories. Every single one of them and there are 45 of them. This show's going to run every week for almost a year. These are stories about people who are using sports to cope with the riddle of existence in a world that makes very, very little sense. And I say that because I have a hunch that many of the people listening to this show maybe wouldn't call themselves sports fans. And if I'm getting that wrong, I apologize. I myself am really just a baseball fan. I don't even know a whole lot about a lot of other sports. But I know what I connect with about baseball, which is that it gives a container to a lot of other feelings that I can't make sense of all the time. Feelings of devotion to something bigger than myself, feelings of exhilaration and sadness that come on suddenly and overtake me and then disappear 
without really giving me any time to process them. My connection to my dad. These are just my own examples, but people use sports to process all sorts of feelings, and they go to extraordinary lengths in service of that attempt. And that is what this series is about. Every episode addresses that phenomenon in a different way, through the lens of a different sport, through a different emotional lens. Some of the stories are funny. Some of them are harrowing. Some of them are horrifying. Some of them are absurd and everywhere in between. And though I am the host of the show, um, which I'm very excited about, each episode is narrated by an extraordinarily skilled reporter, um, Meadowlark and Campside, the companies that produced this series, worked with some of the best journalists on the planet to source these stories, and then they dedicated the resources to let the reporters report these stories out uh, to their fullest extent. And the result is a series that I will just say, in the sculpting and editing of it, um, we talked about as you know, humbly, trying to be the This American Life of sports. And obviously, all of you uh, can be the judge of that, but I'm, I'm just so proud of it. And the trailer for this series is out today. Uh, if you just search for Sports Explains the World in any podcast player, you can listen to the trailer. If you happen to be a Wondery Plus subscriber, Wondery is distributing the show, you can listen to the first nine episodes today. Uh, but if you are not a Wondery Plus subscriber, do not worry. The show will be available for free everywhere on August 23rd. And I will have a lot more to say about it then. All right, but let's talk about Megan Tan, who is on today's episode of this show, The Midnight Disease. Which, by the way, uh, I often save this for the end credits, but I want to make sure I, I start saying it up top more. We have an email address for the show. It's midnight at walt.fm. And I would love to hear from you if you have anything at all to say about the show. If something you've heard on the show has moved you and made you think about things differently, I'd love to know that. If something on the show bothered you, you can let me know that too. Um, if there's something that I've been doing with it that you think I should be doing differently, I would welcome that also. Um, so reach out. Midnight at walt.fm. Okay, now to talk about Megan Tan for real, for real. Um, real, what a great word to use to begin our conversation about Megan Tan. I wanted to talk to Megan for a lot of reasons, but one of them is, you know, there's this phenomenon in radio storytelling where some creators just have a sound that's all their own. And Megan is one of those creators. And she has been a producer, she's been a writer, she's been a host, she's been all three of those things on podcasts and radio shows, and there is this animating spirit behind all of her work. Um, so if we take Millennial, for example, which I mentioned a moment ago is, is the first thing that she ever did. Millennial was this docuseries of which she was the subject where with just an astonishing level of intimacy, openness, and vulnerability, 
she told the story of her attempt to make sense of being a person in her 20s, out of college, with a dream that hasn't come true yet, and a set of challenges and limiting factors around family life and money that are impeding that dream. And she chronicled her pursuit in real time through an audio documentary that she made about herself, which is interesting enough all on its own, except that there's this added layer that the dream she has is to make audio documentaries professionally. So you're hearing her with what is already a very high level of skill use the medium in which she wants to work to tell the story of her attempt to work in that medium. It's just fascinating. And she writes herself in such a relatable way. She so effortlessly, to the listener, obviously, and we'll talk about this, there is effort behind this, but to the listener, she so effortlessly convinces the people around her in her life to join her on mic and on the phone to address the same challenging questions and dilemmas that she is addressing. Um, It's just this incredible piece of memoir, of storytelling, and of radio. And it's totally addictive to listen to. That's the other thing that's great about it, is the episodes are fairly short, and each one of them ends on... We talk about this in the interview, but there's like an A storyline, a B storyline, and a C storyline in every episode. They all end on cliffhangers. You end every episode like, what's going to happen to my friend Megan? I have to know. And she accomplished all of this in spite of the fact that this was the first podcast, piece of audio documentary that she'd ever made. It's amazing to listen to. And now she's somebody that I think of as residing at the top of the radio mountain somebody who has figured it out, how to tell stories in a beautiful signature way in sound and to do that for a living uh, at prestigious outlets. And until recently, she was working at LAist Studios, where, as I mentioned, she created and hosted these shows Wild and Snooze, both of which feature some of the most innovative, also very personal storytelling that you could possibly imagine. Um, You're going to hear us talk a little bit about Wild in particular in this interview, um, which, among other things, addressed this similarly urgent question to the one she did in Millennial, which is like, how do you navigate falling in love with somebody? How do you do that? It's the most simultaneously natural and unnatural thing in the world. And... Megan, in partnership with uh, her fellow producer, Eric Galindo, uh, found a way to do that on that show. And as I mentioned, she recently had this piece air on This American Life. It is just gorgeous. Uh, This piece about her father, who had a bad fall and ends up moving in with Megan so that she can take care of him. And, And this prompts this entire reconsideration of their relationship and lifelong dynamic. Beautiful stuff. The last thing I want to say uh, before we get to the interview is there's a part in this interview where I get something wrong, and I'm a little embarrassed about it. I'm not a little embarrassed about it. I'm very embarrassed about it. It's not like a big deal thing. Um, You'll hear it. And I left it in because it ends up 
speaking to the broader themes that we are discussing in the conversation. Um, but it was a very interesting moment for me as an interviewer because I try to prepare extensively for these conversations with people I admire so much. And it was just a teaching moment for me to have this moment where I realized I had gotten something wrong that I shouldn't have missed, but that there was still, I hope you will agree, a way to incorporate it into the conversation in without um, derailing things or hopefully letting my guilt uh, get in the way of Megan's message. But if you don't think I accomplished that, midnight at WALT.FM is the way to let me know. All right, let's talk to Megan Tan on WALT. Megan Tan, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Thank you, Sam. (laughs) The first question I always like to ask is, if you think of this phrase, the midnight disease, and Mm. you apply it to your creative practice, um, what comes to mind if you were to conjure an image of yourself in the throes of the midnight disease? What do you see? Mm. Well, disease sounds negative. Yes. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Um, and it also sounds all-consuming. Mm. Um, because when I think of disease, I think like, oh, something has swallowed my body mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and brain and being and I am subservient to this thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. I don't have that relationship with creating anymore. And to be honest, I like my life like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So 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 I can describe an old version of myself yeah. experiencing the midnight disease and then I can tell you why I don't really experience that anymore. That would be great. I'm I'm very very uh captivated and want to know the story behind this this word anymore. So do yeah. do tell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my background is photojournalism, Mm -hmm. right? And the school that I went to was just very intense. I think you could describe it almost like an art school, but for photojournalists. Wow. Where, yeah, where it was like you just eat and and breathe taking photos of other people. Yeah. You know, your assignments, everything else kind of went to the waste, like... Sure, mm-hmm. you minored in Spanish, but nobody really cared about those classes. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. because anyway, so, and, and, and that kind of rigor created really, um, like an incredible work ethic, but it was also obsessive, mm-hmm. right? And I think my personality type is already a little obsessive. Like, I'm definitely the type of person who, uh, once I get my teeth into something and I am determined to see it all the way through, I, I don't stop. And this was just like, even when I was in high school, middle school, I would just like 
get into a project and just stay up all night and like work on it, you know, Uh because it was, it was exciting and fun. Right. And I just wanted it to be great. Mm -hmm. Um, and so coming out of college, I only knew how to function in the world in that way. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so the old version of me, which now is probably about a decade ago, Mm -hmm. was when I was making millennial and it was in my closet and um, I would just, you know, I would just, I, I was working all the time, yeah. actually. Like I had a full-time job at the time. I was like 24, 25. I had made millennial to get me a job in public radio. And then while I had that job in public radio, which was like, eight hours a day. I was commuting there, commuting back an hour. So that's two hours in the car. Mm-hmm. And then before I would go to work, I would work on millennial. And oh my then God. after I know. And then after I came home from work, I would have dinner and then work on millennial. And mm-hmm. some days I would sleep an hour. Yeah. Like, and I would be like, oh my God, what is this life I'm living? But I also felt like I was, it was like the most thrilling, you yeah. know? Like I was like, I would just splash water in my face at work and be like, I'm crazy. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. But then, but then I would, but then I would just like keep keep going, right? So mm-hmm. um I would but but like there was no other room in my brain for literally anything else. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It was like I was just constantly thinking about stories. I was worrying, you know, I was racked with anxiety about what I was going to make, who mm-hmm. I was going to interview, how I was going to churn something out. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, that did feel a bit like a disease. It was all consuming. Yeah. I have sciatica because of it. Mm-hmm, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just, yeah. You know, and and also like at the time I really didn't have a full life. Like I didn't have a lot of friends, mm-hmm. you know, cuz I had moved to a new place and all I was thinking about was like how could I um make how can I practice this craft enough to get really confident at yeah. it, you know? Can I but just before you continue, I'm I'm so interested in this moment that you're describing because you have started millennial as a way to achieve an end, which is a job in radio. Mm-hmm. You've now gotten a job in radio. Mm-hmm. What keeps you making millennial even as millennial has already notionally quote unquote served its purpose? You could do whatever you wanted. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when I, I remember when I started at this this job that I had, it was so much more like contained mm-hmm. in a way that I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. You know, even even the people I was working with at the time, I just didn't feel like they spoke my language uh-huh. of character development. Mm. You know, long form narrative like a movie making, you know, type of yeah. work that I was very uh, attracted to and wanted to get better at. Yeah. And and when I was making millennial at home, I could just do whatever I wanted. Yeah. You know, I could play, I could experiment, I could basically do anything. 
right? Yeah. Well, Millennial and feels, as a listener, Millennial feels like, it feels like you're watching an episodic TV show. Every week there's a little mini arc with our yes. main character, Megan, and our favorite side characters, whether it's your boyfriend at the time or your mom. And right. yeah. the, there's always like an A story, a B story, and a C story. Um, yeah, yeah. And so it, it it really has, that's one of the things that is so magnetic about it is it feels like we are on a on a narrative journey of the kind we're accustomed to watching on like a prestige TV show. So if I'm mm-hmm. hearing you correctly, at the radio station, were you making more like talk-driven programming? What was what was the gap there? I, I was making more talk show. Uh-huh. I had I was working on two shows. And then there came this point where uh, Millennial was doing much like just in, just in terms of press, like it just got so much press. And so I just was like, wow, this show that I'm making from my closet where I get to basically do whatever I want and I'm my own <laughs> boss is doing way better than these shows yeah. where, you know, we essentially get paid the same amount, you mm-hmm, know, if mm-hmm. I were to leverage my own, my own independence. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And so I just took that jump, but I would say the jump because I was still so new for me, I just leaned or was even more swallowed by the disease. Mm. Right. Right. And this is something I'm thinking about right now. Like I'm an artist. I will always be an artist and whether or not to put a lot of pressure on your art to make you money. I have the same wonder and the same dilemma. And I think your story in particular is such a fascinating case study about this. Because if we think about the moment you're describing right now, you have made millennial at this time in your life. You're in your mid-20s. And Mm -hmm. you have brought millennial into existence from thin air. It's not something that you made within a previously existing media company. I mean, this is what's appealing about it. It is like uniquely your story, but it is also all of our stories. Um, Mm. So it has this intense value that only exists because you're bringing your own experience and passion to it. That's what's being responded to in the media marketplace in the form of this press. And if I'm hearing you right, you're only able to make it by dedicating an astonishing amount of effort to it, uh, an amount of effort that necessitates one hour of sleep at night and locking yourself in a closet. Um, yeah, record- really unhealthy. <laughs> yes, yes, behaving in a diseased, if you will, sort of fashion. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, but but there is also this this sense that it you must do it. It is what, what you feel yeah. like you must do. Yeah. So, yeah, something that... That makes me wonder about your work is there is such a recurrent theme in my experience in listening to your work of the work is able to exist because you are constantly recording phone calls with your mom, because you are constantly recording interactions with your dad after he comes to live with you, because... At the very beginning of Millennial, you're recording moments with you and your partner at the time and visits to your partner's family. Um, Mm -hmm. And that absent that material, 
so much of what we hear in your storytelling wouldn't be there. You would have to describe it to us. Um, mm-hmm. So can you tell me about the, the origins of that compulsion to record or that interest in recording? Did that predate your desire to work in audio or was it something you started doing because you knew that that was the goal? I think when I started doing Millennial is when I really started just recording a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. that I would have with everyone because I was so hungry and scared of this weird moment in my life, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I had been reading a lot about like the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, really I'm trying to understand character development. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, characters just go through change. They just go Mm -hmm. through a lot of change. And that (laughs) is what makes their story compelling, you know? And I was like, I feel like all I do is go through change, you know? (laughs) And so I just started kind of recording everything like that. I felt like... I was going through a lot of transitions. A lot of my friends were going through similar transitions. And maybe I could make some meaning out of the things I was going through while also just getting better at the craft, you know? Yeah. Millennial was like the first thing that I made. And then later on, these pieces that I've been able to do about my father. Mm-hmm. To be honest, at the time that it was happening, I think I have a really bad memory. And so Mm. one thing that I love about audio that I have never gotten from any other medium is Mm. how it just teleports you. Yeah. Like exactly back to where you were when you were doing that thing. You can see it in your brain. Mm -hmm. You can smell it. Like it's weird. But every time I would listen to old footage of my own, I would be like, whoa, I'm there. Like, I know exactly where I am when I did this. Yeah. And so when I was having these moments with my father, who had recently fallen at Mm -hmm. the time, we were having these like very special, new, nuanced moments in my life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, I have to remember this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And also, I think it, it is, it's a way for me to, to get a little separation yeah. from the event itself. If I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm in a movie. Like, I mm-hmm. am in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> then, then, like, then I can kind of see it as a movie, right? Yeah. Like, my yeah. life is unfolding, sure, and like um, a lot of things I don't know are kind of happening, but I am in a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. So I can kind of have this like I'm zoomed out and I'm in it, zoomed out and I'm in it. And I think that's just how I've learned to process kind of really intense moments. And then and then the other thing for me is like why go through kind of the intense tumultuous human experience just for you. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't create value out of that moment for others. You know Hmm. what I mean? So I'm constantly being like, oh, how do I transform this into something I can share with people so that they can see 
whatever they're going through is something they can overcome yeah. because I'm overcoming it, you know? And, and, and to be honest, that comes from my um, Buddhist philosophy. Yes. You know? Well, it makes yeah. me, it makes me think of something I heard you say in an interview once, which is that at the time, and this may have changed, you said something to the effect of having a daily, I believe you said it was like a chant. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. That, uh, was something to the effect of this, this Buddhism that you live. Um, mm. let me make sure I have it right. <laughs> I could just tell you. <laughs> okay. Yes. It's something about transformation, that it contains transformation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in, so I practice Nichiren Buddhism. Okay. And in Nichiren Buddhism, um, we talk about how, like every single thing has a positive function and a negative function. Mm. Everything. This conversation you and I are having, getting hurt, let's say, uh, getting money, right? Mm-hmm. Has a positive function and a negative function. And it's really up to us um, when we, we call it like a high life condition to, we, we say become absolutely happy and absolutely happy means like you aren't actually swayed by your environment, hmm. right? Like you are able to not be swayed, essentially, yes. right? And so in looking at, oh, everything has a positive function and a negative function, when we have a high life condition, right, we're not swayed by our environment because we're able to see our problems as benefits, you yeah. know? The question is like, can you constantly pull for the positive function, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, when my dad fell, I was in LA, he was in Ohio, um, and I'm chanting, I chant twice a day, Mm -hmm. and I chant this mantra, and as I was chanting, I just decided that this was going to become his biggest benefit Hmm. and like our family's biggest benefit. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and that's another thing too, that I've been thinking about a lot is like, you know, where's, where's the power as we maneuver life, you know, like, do I have the power? Does the environment have the power? Who has the power Mm -hmm. anyway? So when I was able to just decide that, like, this is going to be our family's biggest benefit, right? Like, it's like it. And I just chant in that way. It sets into motion, like, I'm going to pull all the positive functions, right? And so even though this was such an intense moment, I was able to create a story of value, you know, to be able to illustrate, like, not only did this fall catalyst, and again, if you think about it like a movie, it's like it catapulted me and my father to totally transform our relationship for the better. Yes. Um, But also like all of these other things came out of it that I could never have expected, like him moving in with um, my fiance and I, and also because he moved in with us, we bought a house in LA. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it was like Mm -hmm. all of these things um, that I just could not have imagined with my brain. And so I feel like, even when, when I get laid off, right? Like, even though that looks like, oh my gosh, bleh, poor me. Like, I can't believe this is happening. And again, 
I do have bad days, you know, but yeah. in the bigger picture, I'm like, how am I going to create the most value out of this moment? Yeah. So that when I, when I look back, I'm able to really just decide and I, you know, I can decide right now, like being laid off is going to be my biggest benefit. I'm just going to see it that way. And then I'll tell the story to show people like, oh, I transformed that into something that was a big benefit, you know? Yeah. Well, it puts what you were just saying about your practice of recording what was happening around you into such interesting context. Because particularly the remark you made about like, if I can see myself as a person in a movie, then I can navigate this. Yeah. So. Yeah, because yeah, you know the movie. <laughs> you know the movie, but also like it, in a way, it is a step, it is a gesture towards that aspiration of not being swayed by the environment. Because if, yeah. it's, if it's life and you are being buffeted on all sides by intense upheaval, it could cause you to shut down. It could cause you to uh, be immobilized. And if you see it as a movie, it allows you to say there is more that will come of all this. Eventually this becomes a part of a grand narrative that will be of service to others. And that in that vein, the practice of recording becomes, I will say, a a spiritual practice in a way. It becomes in service of this kind of transcendence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And I do think, like, I will be honest, you know, I started recording my father and I in those moments because I was, I wanted to remember them. Mm -hmm. I was so steeped in what was going on though, that I I wasn't thinking at the time, I'm going to do something with this, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. at all. And it, it wasn't until I went back to my team, you know, I took a month off of work Mm -hmm. and, and I went back to my team And we were trying to figure out what would be the final episode of the show I made at LA is called Snooze. Yeah. And, um, and they were like, they actually pitched me, you should make it about your father. Hmm. And I was like, no, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, no, you know, I really, really had to think about it Mm -hmm. uh, because doing that type of personal work is is like so you got to dig you got to dig into the most heart, yes. like the humanist heart of you you got to reflect you got to reflect out loud you, you know there's mm-hmm. just like so much more work that comes with it and so what motivates those types of projects for me is the I'm doing this for other people, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not just doing this for me as like a navel gazing situation. Like this is going to impact millions of people. And it did, you know, like I made this, I made that episode for snooze and then it went to this American life, right? you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, and there's just so many people who are taking care of, their parents right now just to reflect back at you the idea that your mantra for yourself that this will eventually help people is working um there's a moment in the this american life version of the story 
that is just so extraordinary. And the fact that you bottled it in the context of this narrative is, and I don't want to give away the ending of the story if people haven't listened to it. Although if it was on This American Life, I imagine many of the people listening to this (laughs) will have already heard it. Um, But the part where you're sitting and you're talking to your dad about this whole journey that you've been on from him, you guys having a strained relationship to him falling, to him being depressed, to him moving in with you, to him starting to recover, to him coming in to actually share openly about his feelings with you. I mean, just the chronicle Mm -hmm. of that journey alone is extraordinary to sit with. Mm -hmm. But the fact Mm -hmm. that he says to you in so many words I just didn't really think you cared about my life. And Mm -hmm. for you to have to sit and contend with that and that you thought you were showing him all this care until Mm -hmm. he, until you create the space for him to say, I needed a different kind of care. Mm -hmm. I mean, I sat quietly with myself for 20 minutes after I listened to that. Mm -hmm. Um, because I've had versions of that interaction with loved ones in my, in my own life. So mm-hmm. thank you <laughs> for, for doing that. And wow. it, yeah. it reminds me of one of my favorite moments in Millennial, which actually happens in, I think, the very first episode, which is you, at, correct me if I'm, if I'm misremembering which episode it's in, but you, you move home and... You, oh, yeah. you come home and you know that your parents have separated. You know that your mom has moved out of the house. You know that intellectually. I think you even say to us, I knew that intellectually. But it doesn't really land for you until you walk in to her old study mm-hmm. and you see that the books on the bookshelf have tipped over because yeah. she's just not there to set them right anymore. Yeah. And you captured something in that moment that um, my parents are also divorced. And I remember the first time I came home, I knew that they had separated. But it was the first time that I went out to dinner with my dad. And at the end of the dinner, he said, all right, well, I'll see you around. And then he turned and walked off into the night because he was going to a different place to sleep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was crushed in that mm-hmm. moment. I, I just became so aware that like the entire rest of my life is going to be different and I don't know where to put these feelings. So the fact that you found a way at that early stage in your mm. audio expression to capture and express that, I, I appreciated so much. Mm. And it makes me want to ask you, where do you think you got the appreciation of sound to do this from? Because another thing I heard you say in an interview once is that one of the things that spurred you to want to work in audio is that you were thinking about filmed documentaries and how they kind of live and die because of the sound. Um, Mm, So mm -hmm. tell me more about that revelation. What, what were you think? What do you mean by that? I've always gravitated towards like, how can I connect people with people, Mm -hmm. you know? And even with photography, I was always like, I want to document or show, you know, the, the full range of, of this type of marginalized group, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. a way that illustrates their humanism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. 
And I feel like with audio, I just, when I was, when I was consuming like my favorite audio pieces at the time, I was like, wow, I really think about these people, Mm. you know, like I just, I care about them. I think about them. I want to know how they're doing right now. You know, like I would, yeah. And so um, I think for me, I was just like so fascinated with that type of care. Mm. Yeah. Being able to articulate it with you right now, it it is, it's like, it, it, it's like a care. And how was I able to care for uh, a, a person I'll never meet yeah. whose face I don't know? You know what I mean? Like, but yes. I, right. Like, I, but I sincerely cared about them. And so. Well, you're making me think, um, you're making me think like, I, I'm so glad you brought up the photojournalism component of this. Cause like these moments that we're describing, this interaction that you had with your father, um, that walking into your mom's study and seeing the books, you cannot take a picture of that. That's not something yeah. you can photograph. It can only be conveyed in a way in this audio storytelling. And it, it, it's making me think that it's almost like, you know, they always say like a picture is worth a thousand words. But like mm-hmm. in audio storytelling, it's like, it's almost the inverse. It's like, um, because we're inventing the story in our heads of these people, mm-hmm. it, it's like the the sound is worth a thousand pictures or something like that. Mm. But I do think, you know, what we're really talking about, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to realize I was doing that until later. Mm. Like you can have tape, but what is the idea behind the tape? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. So like, that's what you're talking about. I think is, I'm describing a scene, but the idea is that there's a a missingness to the house, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so everything that I'm talking about is illustrating that something is missing and that missing person is my mother, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's actually, it's actually the idea, you know, and, and that to me, I think is what elevates Audio is like, it's not just about the story and it's not just about the characters. It's like, there's an idea here and and what is the idea? Plenty more to come with Megan Tan on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. said once in somebody asked you to describe the Megan Tan way and you said I love how much research you did Sam I just want to shout out to you (laughs) oh I'm I'm so excited to be talking to you truly um you said that it is to 
lean into the specifics of your life to give the world more sparkle. Oh. <laughs> and That's really it, funny. That is it, very poetic, old Megan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, something that I would be interested in having you reflect on a little bit, if you'd be willing, is in having this ability, this one willingness and two ability to lean into the specifics of your life, to make them into fodder for stories in hopes of creating this sparkle. I have a sense of you as coming from two sort of diametrically opposed impulses around that in terms of your parents. On the one hand, there's your dad, who at least in the This American Life piece, you characterize as emotionally kind of distant, not wanting to be very sharing or forthcoming about the specifics of his life, to the point that there's this amazing anecdote where you like go to all this trouble to learn to speak the language you think he speaks, and then he's like, I, that, I don't speak that language. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then on the other side, you have your mom, who you literally say in Snooze, my mom taught me to tell stories. She was always willing to share her life to the point that like she would go up and tell strangers about her life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just want to give j- just like quick context. Like my dad is an immigrant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. F- from mm-hmm. Singapore and he's Chinese. So like how he mo- maneuvers the world is like deeply yeah. cultural, um, generational, also coming to this country totally as someone who doesn't fit in, you mm-hmm. know, in the sixties, like, it's just, th- there's, there's a lot, you know, that is more than like, oh, he just was born this way. And yes. then similar with my mom, right? Like she's German, a white woman, you know, who like has her whole family is from Ohio. You know what I mean? There's just like, she can be more there's just more context around their behavior culturally. Yeah. Totally. Um, With all of that said, it's very interesting for me to think of you emerging from somewhere between those two poles. So Mm -hmm. what do you, what do you make of that dichotomy and, and the way that you have ended up doing so much deeply personal storytelling? Well, both of my parents are artists, you know? Mm, So my dad, mm -hmm, my mm -hmm. dad came to the U.S. to go to art school. Um, Mm -hmm. And my mom is, you know, a practicing watercolorist as we speak and Mm -hmm. also Mm -hmm. became an art teacher, you know? So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, the creative lineage is there you know, mm-hmm. and, and both of them are Buddhist, you know, mm-hmm. so both of them practice mm-hmm. Buddhism. I was, I was raised going to Buddhist meetings where yeah. people would share these kind of around the campfire. Um, it's like around the campfire, but also transformative stories, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that's just deeply ingrained in this philosophy and how I grew up. I just feel like, well, I am the expert on me and there's only one me 
mm-hmm. you know? So <laughs> let, let's try to lean into the uniqueness of that. Um, but then I, I just want to say the other thing, you know, going back to your first question of like the midnight disease and yep. how it's changed. Mm-hmm. Like the reason why I don't see it as a disease is because when I'm making work, I decide that I'm going to have a lot of fun, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. like even when it comes to writing or even when it comes to sound design, like, I'm just like, I'm going to have so much fun, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I can be sincere, but I don't got to be like sad, you know? So, well, that makes me want to ask you, I think of one of the kind of secret sauce elements of your work as you, in tape, you laugh a lot. We often hear you laugh. Yeah, I do. I do. I laugh a lot in person. Yes, yes. And I think you even say this or gesture at this in the narration of the This American Life piece that sometimes laughter is like a nervousness response. Sometimes it's like a distancing response. Um, that like being the youngest kid in the family, the one to like crack the jokes and lighten the mood is like yeah, kind of core. Your role. Yes, yes. It's like core yeah. to your identity. Yeah. But it's very interesting to me the role that laughter plays in your storytelling. I guess the reason I'm interested in it is because like I have been in so many editorial environments where I have been told, take the laughs out of the tape. Uh, and you, to my ear at least, consistently leave them them in to very positive effect. I want to be clear. I love that you do that. What I'm the question in all this is like how conscious is that? It's not that conscious. Okay. I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. No, I don't really actually well, let me think about this. Okay. In the work that I did recently, mm-hmm. like Wild Season Two, yes. or even Wild Season One, How Do I Love Someone? Mm-hmm. I do call this the salt and pepper of a personality. Ah. Yeah, I guess I do. Okay. And it, but it doesn't just pertain to the laughs. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, how can you remind people audibly that someone is there and reacting to the other person? Yep. Right. Yep. And, and how do you make that feel like them? Yeah. So I guess I do do that consciously where I'm like a little salt, a little pepper, a little mm-hmm. laugh, a little sigh, a little mm-hmm, little uh-huh, you know? Yep. Like, yeah, I, I do do that. I do do that. That makes me, I'm glad you brought up uh, How Do I Love Somebody? Um, because it makes me think of the moment in that story where you go for the hike with uh, James, I think is what you call him in the story. Um, (laughs) And uh, you guys are, you're out for the hike and you're talking about how like initially when you're going uphill, there's not as much chemistry, but then as you start to come down the hill, it starts to build. Eventually you're sitting on a blanket and Mm -hmm. we hear tape of you asking him what he writes about in his journal. Mm -hmm. And we get to hear him go like, uh, I don't usually tell, tell people, people about yeah. that, but but I guess I'll tell you because I like you. 
which is fascinating. And then we hear him be like, is this okay? And then he starts to rub your feet. And it's Uh like such a complicated moment because it just strikes me as that a salt and pepper moment because like he doesn't ever actually really tell us what he writes about in his journal, if memory serves. Um, But we get, we get so much about him as a person, namely that he clearly really likes you. And also that we hear him dodge by being like, instead of answering the question, I will now rub this person's feet, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you brought it up in the context of that story. Um, Another question I wanted to ask you about that story though, is did he know that you were going to record the date? So he was an actor. That was an actor. Oh, well. Yeah, that was an actor. Okay, amazing. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, that's great. (laughs) Do you say that in the, do you say that in the story and I just missed it? We say it it at the end. At the end, okay. No, 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 we we say it at the end. But also we say this is, you know, again, similar to a film, right? Mm -hmm. We're like, this is based on a true story. right. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. But we don't say, we don't say like, you know, this is fictional piece, right? Because mm-hmm. some of it actually isn't. Yeah. Eric and I had a genuine conversation about that mm-hmm. moment in my life. And um, and then I went out and created the scenes with an actor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then at the end we say, you know, James was played by blah, 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 the actor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. apologize. I must have missed that in the in the credits. Um, yeah. How do you feel now that you know? <laughs> um, good because I, I, for whatever, somehow, I, cause I did know in season two that this was somewhere between recreation and reenactment and the, the lawyers were like, you need to tell everyone this is fictional. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Multiple times. Although, I mean, I guess it, that your your characterization of the salt and pepper of like leaving those things in is interesting even more interesting to me in this context because one of the other moments i noted the presence of laughter in your painter's palette your audio painter's palette is there's this great moment where you're waiting for james for the date to start and you're by yourself in the car you're just mm-hmm. it's just a voice memo that you're recording of yourself and you're playing this game where you're like is that his car is that his car and you're mm-hmm. laughing to yourself in that tape. Yes. And I had this thought like, oh, she even laughs to herself when she's by herself. Yes, um, I do do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is, yeah, that is who I am for mm-hmm. sure. And, yeah. and I was recording. Again, it's like I was waiting for this actor and I was recording myself as I was waiting for him. Mm-hmm. If I may, Megan, the, I'm hung up a little bit on... This revelation that James was an actor. And you you asked me, like, well, what does it feel like for you to now know that? And in the moment, I was, like, very flummoxed. I was like, oh, my God, Sam, how could you have missed that? And as we've been talking over the last couple of minutes, I think I have an answer to that that I would like to put back to you, which sure. is that it makes me love that story more, is the short answer. <laughs> Good. And, and the reason is... Because I didn't know (laughs) that it was an actor, I experienced it as reality, which Mm -hmm. means that you, in writing it, chose pure salt and pepper Mm. 
as the moments of James that you wanted to capture. Mm -hmm. And that means that, I don't know how you wrote that. I I would actually be interested to know if you wouldn't mind sharing how how you wrote that part for the actor to play. But I interpret it, having heard this, as you remembered the journal moment, you remembered the foot rub moment, you remembered him saying, I like to write, I used to write raps. And in sharing those moments, you gave me such a clear picture of this person in, mm-hmm. a, in a way that could not have been achieved in the same way by you just telling me about him. You appreciate the salt and pepper so much that you were able to like recreate it in, in this mm-hmm. authentic way. Um, mm-hmm. How did you write that character? <laughs> Well, I just want to preface that, like, you know, I had never worked with actors before in my life mm-hmm, at that mm-hmm, moment, mm-hmm. you know, and I had never written like fiction, nonfiction merging. But Eric and I, you know, we were talking about it a lot. And so it was one of those things I was like, well, let's try this. And Eric had worked in the fiction world before. So with this character, James. I, I ha- you know, to be honest, I really, I had never written like a TV show script before. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. when Eric was like, write a TV show script, I tried. And then I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm not going <laughs> to do that. And, but I was like, but I do know how to write essays. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, I ended up writing like a bunch of scripts that I ended up throwing away. And then I just decided to focus on these scenes mm-hmm. And when I worked with Dwarka, the actor, Mm -hmm. um, he, number one, I casted, like, Eric and I casted him, but I was the one who was like, oh, let's use this guy because we have chemistry. We just have natural chemistry. Mm -hmm. He's someone that I, as Megan Tan, would kick it with, Mm -hmm. you know? Yep. And then he also did improv, right? So some of the things that you hear is actually Dwarka as Dwarka answering. Got it. Right? Mm -hmm. Like the character James did not write raps, you know? (laughs) That was something that Dwarka just, I don't know if he Uh actually did it or if he was just like, yeah, as a kid, I used to write raps, you know? Mm -hmm. But like Mm -hmm. I would be, you know, it was him and I on this hill and I was like, all right, let's pretend like we're on a date, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say some things, you're going to say some things, and we're just going to do this lap going up and down the hill, having these types of conversations a couple of times. Got it. You know? Mm-hmm. And we'll just see what comes from it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it isn't until going back to Pro Tools that you can really hear, yeah. oh, this sounds real or this sounds fake, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so from there, I'm able to choose like, oh, this is a good take. This is a not good take. Um, but then Eric, thankfully, he was a, he's been a director. And during that kissing scene and feet rubbing scene, mm-hmm. um, he was actually at the park with us directing us. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so he was listening to we had like labs on mm-hmm. he was the one who was like it's not actually what you say but it's the intention mm-hmm. behind what you're saying 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like if the intention is I'm going to kiss you, you could say like, let's go to the grocery store, you know? But right, like the intention right, right. is like, I'm going to kiss you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And so like that is something that we were coached through. Um, I see. I see. Yes. In terms of like how how the whole thing was made very quickly, Eric and I had a conversation about what actually happened in mm-hmm. my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that conversation is the majority of the narration, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then from there, I decided what um, scenes to like build out. Yep. And in those scenes, I basically got on... Um, I had like two shoots with Dwarka. Um, one was going to be strictly like over the phone. This is during COVID, by the way. So yeah. we were like kind of starting to go outside, but not really. So one, you know, one one shoot was just like straight over the phone. He was recording uh, on his iPhone, like tape syncing. Mm-hmm. And, and I would just coach him. You know, like, I'm going to say this, you say whatever comes to your brain. Mm -hmm. This is the type of person you're playing. And then we just did that again in the park. Got it. And then everything else was like, I mean, at that point, I've collected so much tape just from our repeated interactions of like a scene over and over again that it's like uh, making selects. Yeah. So you made reference earlier to these audio stories that you were listening to that gave you this extraordinary sense of care about these Mm, people mm -hmm. Um, and that presumably made you want to work in audio storytelling. What were those shows? What were those stories? What are the primary source radio voices that reverberate in your head? Um, The first story was on Radiolab. It was... Uh, by Pat Walters Mm -hmm. about this guy named Christopher Daniel Gay and how he used to escape from jail all the time. Uh, He had a really, really rough childhood, always ended up in jail and, and escaped, but then ended up falling in love with this woman. They had a kid. And the question was, would he always be on the run Mm. or would he end up just serving time so that eventually he could be with his family in the long run. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I love about that story the most is that Pat actually asks the journalists this question. Do you think he's going to change this guy? Mm. And the journalist who reported this piece initially was like, no, because this guy reminds me of my father. (laughs) And so it just kind of like leaves it at that. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. But again, it it comes back to like, you know, this uh, undercurrent of like, can this man change his tendencies? Mm -hmm. You know, can there be transformation? Yes. Can there be a transformation? Yeah. I have to say you're the first person to I ask this question somewhat regularly when I talk to folks who work in audio. Radiolab comes Mm -hmm. up a lot. Surprising no one. Um, but you're the first person who has given an answer that didn't have anything to do with sound design, which I think oh. is interesting. Yeah. As we're talking about like salt and pepper, right? Mm-hmm. To me, the sound design is, uh, I always do it 
last. Mm. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, if I'm going to have hot chocolate, that's the whipped cream, <laughs> yes. you know? And then the music right. is the cherry on mm-hmm. top, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because to me, if the story, the story is the chocolate, you know? Yeah. And the ideas, and the ideas that come out of the story, like, it, you know, a lot of people can just listen to that alone. Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of uh, articles are or essays or mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. right? It's just the story and the ideas and the characters. And then everything else is like extra. Yeah. You know, it amplifies it. It's all about transforming it. Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. 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 So Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. So Wild Card Wednesday. All right, so speaking of sports stories that are about much more than just sports, you might have seen the headlines this week that the ownership of my beloved Baltimore Orioles had a delicious meal of foot when it was revealed that one of their TV broadcasters for baseball games had been indefinitely suspended for having the temerity in a pregame segment to mention the fact that prior to this year, when the Orioles are very good, the Orioles had not won as many baseball games as they have won this year. That's all he said. As punishment for this, the guy who runs the Orioles suspended him because he felt that broadcasters for the network that broadcasts Orioles games, which he also owns, shouldn't be saying negative things because it would make him personally, the owner, look bad. This is so absurd and so offensive. I mean, let's leave aside the fact that it is just one thing in a litany of bizarre megalomaniacal, narcissistic, vaguely cult leader-like behaviors that this owner has done. But I, I think, as we all know, we are living in a time when truth in reporting um, is under attack by rich people who own media companies and think that they should be able to dictate what is presented as truth and what is not presented as truth. And it's outrageous. And... Obviously, this is not the most severe example of that behavior. We can all think of others, but it's a particularly resonant one to me, which is why I was so proud of my fellow Orioles fans who last night at a game between the Orioles and the Houston Astros began chanting in support of Kevin Brown, the broadcaster who was suspended for telling 
the truth. This is in the middle of the game, in a game that was being broadcast on Orioles state media, that same TV network that the guy who owns the team also owns and is trying to control. This is what Orioles fans did in the middle of that broadcast. Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Megan Tan for joining me on the show today. Please check the show notes for links to many of the pieces that Megan and I discussed in our conversation. As I mentioned, you can reach me at midnight at walt.fm, and I would encourage you to do so if you have thoughts on anything you've heard on The Midnight Disease We will be back next week with another great conversation. Thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. And in the meantime, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.